Stay with us following Crosswalk for this week's Cross-Culture Q&A. Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross-Culture Church in Raleigh. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter what you have experienced or what's around the corner or what hardships or what trials or what people do to you or the world does to you, it's never a bad time to worship God, to see Him high, lofty, and exalted, and to think that He would choose to come and live among us and die for us. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. Today we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 4 and a scene that can only be described as awesome. This throne surrounded by this crystal sea with lightning and thunder rolling from this throne and this glorious and brilliant light emanating from this throne and this one who sits upon this throne. And these four living creatures that are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The Apostle John has just been summoned to heaven in a vision, and what he sees reminds us of the greatness of our God. As we continue our year-long study of the book of Revelation, we find in chapters 4 and 5 an opportunity to worship God for who He is and what He has done. It's a powerful scene that is revealed, and as Pastor Clay is going to show us, we serve a God who is seated on His throne and firmly in control of the events that are about to unfold. Wednesday, uh, my son Travis and my son Todd uh, found out about this uh, debate that was going on at UNC, on our campus. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the Student Apologetics Association against or debating the uh, Student Atheistic Association. Uh, the, the topic was this evidence for the existence of God. And uh, the debater for the atheist was uh, a fairly, apparently a fairly prominent, I'd never heard of the guy until earlier that week, but a fairly, fairly prominent atheist, at least on and around the UNC campus and, the, and on Facebook. He fa- he's on Facebook and apparently he's got quite a following. Very nice guy. He was debating for them. So anyway, um, we went. And uh, the debate, you know, it was, it was interesting, and it was about what I probably thought it would be. But afterwards, when it was finished, the atheist guys asked us if we wanted to go uh, hang out with them on Franklin Street at some bar. I don't remember the name of it, to tell you the truth. So uh, Todd and Travis both really wanted to go for two totally different reasons, but they both really wanted to go. Um, <laughs> but... Um, so we go down there. We walk down to the bar, and we're going in the door. And Travis says, how long has it been since you've been in a bar, Dad? I said, it has been a long time. <laughs> it's been a long, long time. Um, but, but we hung out for a long time, and, uh, and I mostly listened. Travis and the atheist dude did most of the talking. Um, and uh, there was, it was, it was spirited, uh, spirited talking uh, going on. But, you know, as I was, and I've seen enough of these, and I know pretty much how it goes, and people that have heard me in these discussions before, have heard me say this before, that, um, that, that when it gets right down to it, the problem 
for an atheist. And you may be here, and you may be an atheist. You may be a person that says, you know, I don't believe in God. Or I'm at least agnostic. I, I, I'm not sh- I doubt that there's a God. I'm not sure that there's a God. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem, ultimately. Because, as best I can tell, there's no other way to explain the fact that two people can look at the exact same piece of evidence and come to two totally different conclusions. The exact same evidence, two competent people, uh, um, quote-unquote experts in their field, can look at the exact same evidence and come away with two different conclusions. And, And at the heart of the issue for me, is this. And, and, and I've heard this come up time and time again in some of the atheist arguments. There, there's almost an anger um, at a God that they don't even believe in, which you've heard me say before seems very strange to me, that they can be angry at a God that they don't even believe in. But, but you'll hear them talk about this God, and they'll, they'll take snippets from Scripture and totally abuse them, but, but they'll use them to paint God in this in this light of, of mean and angry and judgmental and all this kind of stuff. And at the heart of the issue is that if a person says, yes, there is a God, he is great and he is almighty and he is exalted and he is on his throne and I am created by him, then the result is I must bend my knee, bend my will, to him and say, you're God, I'm not. And that is ultimately the issue. If you've been coming, you, uh, you know that I've said, I don't know how many times, in Revelation chapter 1 through 3, we have this record of Jesus' letters to the churches, these churches in Asia Minor that represent the church overall, throughout the ages, from that time to this, chapter 6 through 19, deal with what, what, what's known as the Great Tribulation Period, a time of great uh, wrath and, and uncertainty and, and calamity that will come upon this earth. In between are chapters 4 and 5. And chapters 4 and 5 end up being almost an, an interlude, almost a pause between this discussion about the church, all the church and what the church, where the church is falling short and what the church needs to do. And then, and then it stops, and we discussed that last week, why I believe it stops. It stops, but then he doesn't pick up with the, with the tribulation period until chapter 6. So 4 and 5 become this interlude, this pause, and the pause is filled with praise. The pause is filled with praise, with, with worship. You've probably figured out by now we're, uh, we're doing things a little differently today than the way we normally do. We've kind of switched things around, and, um, and that's okay. That's okay. Uh, because there's no hard and fast rule about how worship has to be done one of the things I've discovered through the years and, and through lots of different travel to different places in the world, there's lots of different songs that can be sung that can worship God. There's all different kinds of instruments that can be used to worship God. There's no law that says that, that worship must take place 
at this particular point in a, in a service, the, the gathered corporate worship, that it must take place in this particular point. There's no hard and fast rules about any of those things. The one thing that is unacceptable about worship is when it becomes complacent, when it becomes mundane, when it becomes something that we're supposed to do because we're good Christians. That's what we do. Because we're here, we're, we're gathered here, and, and of course you're supposed to worship. Worship, uh, the word itself comes from an old, it really comes from two old English words. Uh, the first word is, is uh, worth, or, uh, worth or worthson is the first word, and it, uh, it has this meaning to it. It means uh, excellence of character or quality as commanding esteem or having value to it, worthen or worth. Excellence of character or quality or commanding esteem. The second word that makes up our word worship is, is sip or ship, and it means this. Something like shape or quality. So worthship, to put those together, worthship is the quality of having worth or of being worthy. When we worship God, what we are saying is that God is worthy. When we, uh, when we acknowledge His godness... Through song or words or whatever it might be, we are, we, are, we are saying God is worthy of worship. Praise then, in my opinion, praise is really, it's really almost the same thing as worship. It's, it's really just maybe two sides of the same coin, except I think of praise as the outward expression of the worship that I feel that God is worthy of. Because I believe that God is worthy, it is expressed in my praise that comes out of my life, whether it's in song or in actions or in, or in whatever it is. The attributes of God are so many that we could probably spend eternity praising Him, worshiping Him for all the various attributes of God. But in the context of chapter 4 and chapter 5, as I was looking at it this week, as I've been studying this text, I was saying, you know what? If, if, if you, if you want to kind of encapsulate it, if you want to kind of bring it down, really uh, condense it into something that, that you can really get your mind around, that you could really say that, that we worship God for two reasons. Chapter 4 covers one of those reasons, and chapter 5, I believe, covers the other one of those reasons. Before we get to those reasons, I want to read the text to you, and you read along with me. And then we're going to define some of the terms that we find in this text, as we have done throughout this study in the book of Revelation, in which I will continue to do, to define terms for you as best I understand it. Because remember, the book of Revelation is filled with symbolism. That's one of the reasons why people are so afraid of it. So, so one of the reasons why so many people don't want to study the book of Revelation is because there's so much symbolism in it. But if you'll remember, I uh, told you at the very beginning what this word means. You remember the word revelation? Does anybody remember what the word actually means? The word itself actually means the, to unveil or to reveal something. God wants you and I to know something from this book. What does he want us to know from Revelation chapter 4 and the idea of worshiping him today? Thanks for being with us. I really appreciate it. Verse 3 is where we're beginning 
And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed. And were created. What a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. Powerful description. We didn't read verse 2 this morning necessarily. But verse uh, 2 lets us know that as soon as John gets into heaven in his vision. As soon as John arrives. The first thing that kind of catches his eye. Out of all that's going on. All the scene. And we're going to walk through every bit of it. The first thing that catches his eye is this throne. Throne, by the way, and you might want to you know, write this down some way, a margin in your Bible or something like that. Uh, throne is a prominent word. It's one of the prominent words um, in Revelation chapter 4, really in the entire book. Fourteen times the word throne appears in Revelation chapter 4. Forty-six times overall in the entire book of Revelation. Forty-six times the word throne or thrones appears in the book of Revelation. John sees this throne and he sees the one who is seated on the throne. I think the way the text puts it is, and he who was sitting. Who is it? I I mentioned the Q&A kind of tied into, because we see that here in this. The one who is sitting on the throne in Revelation chapter 4, clearly it seems to be God the Father. The reason we know that it's God the Father that's being described here is because God the Spirit is also there. He's described in verse 5. We're about the, the seven... Lamps, and we've talked about that before. That's shown up before in uh, in the description in Revelation, as being representative of 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 just the the Holy Spirit and all of His and all encompassing that number seven and all that. We've discussed that before, but Holy Spirit is there in verse five, and God the Son shows up in Revelation chapter five. So Revelation chapter four, He who is sitting on the throne is God the Father. I want to call something else to your attention also about that when He says. He was sitting on throne. I want to call your attention to that word like. I want to remind you of that word like. Again, I brought this up the very first week of this study, and I bring it up again just to remind you, don't forget that word like. John 
is trying to describe to us what he's seeing in these visions. And, and, and the things that he's seeing, he ain't never seen before. Nobody has seen what John is seeing. And he's trying to describe it in terms that you and I can somehow identify with, that you and I can somehow, okay, I, I think I can get my mind, I'm not exactly sure what it's in, but I, at least I can get my mind around that sort of thing. So don't forget, like, you see that term like or as or in the appearance of, John's saying, I'm not saying this is what it is, I'm just saying that it, that it's kind, that it kind of looks like that. And that's what, for instance, when he says, um, like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. He's not saying that God the Father is a stone. He's not saying that he's a, that he's a, a sardius, which I, uh, I think may be a, or jasper, which may be a reference to diamond, I'm not sure, or sardius, which was a red stone. He's not, he's not saying it. He's saying that the light, the color, uh, the brilliance that was emanating from the throne, that it was like that. It was like the colors of those stones, and it was bright, and it was brilliant, and it was, it was beautiful, and it was colorful. It's like that, he's saying. And the text says, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. <clears throat> the implication of the text is, is that it's an that, that all-encompassing ra- rainbow. That it's a, in other words, we, we're used to seeing, you know, arced angels. This was a completely encircling rainbow, more than likely vertical, considering what else is around the throne. Probably a vertical, the, the, the vision is a vertical rainbow completely encircling the throne of God. <sighs> um. Notice something else, too. Do you notice there's no, there's no physical description of God the Father? He's described in terms of color. He's described in terms of light. He's not described in a physical appearance. And here's this, this rainbow around the throne. We first saw the rainbow where? In the book of Genesis with who? Noah. That's right. When God sent Noah a rainbow as, as what, what we refer to as a covenant promise. It's more than just a, a promise. It's more than a contract. It's, it's a binding. God bound himself and said, I'll never again flood the entire earth. The, my rainbow is that sign. Uh, my understanding is that the rainbow around the throne is simply a reminder to us that God is the covenant God. God is the God who keeps his promises. God is the God who makes the promises and keeps the promises, that it all emanates from him, and he's one that God is the God who says what he says, does what he says, means what he says, keeps his promises, his covenants to us. I was thinking about that. I wish I had time. Uh, I wish I had time to describe to you all the times in my life, and, and, y'all, and I'm sure y'all could too, all the times in my life that the covenant God has just shown up and, and made himself so real in my life uh, by, by the way he intervened in my life. And I, I was just thinking about, I was thinking back to when I first answered God's call uh, to ministry. It was November of 1992. I'd been doing vac- uh, student ministry part-time, and, but I, I, I didn't know it was going to lead to something uh, even more that God wanted in, in my life. But as he was leading me that, in November 92, I went forward on a Sunday night. I said, God called me to pastor and to preach his word. I, I know that's what he's calling me to do. And I, and I knew it. I, I did know it. My wife knew it. What I didn't know was how in the world are we going to pay for this? I got to go to school. I was, I was, uh, <laughs> I needed me some book learning. <laughs> I, need, I, I did. I, 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 did. I hadn't been to college. I, 
I hadn't been to seminary, master's, doctorate, none of that stuff. I couldn't even spell doctorate probably. So uh, I knew I, I needed to go to school. I just, if I had the opportunity, I needed to do that. And just, I didn't have a clue I was going to do it. I really didn't know, but I knew God was calling me to do this. That was in November. Uh, two or three weeks later, we got a Christmas card from uh, uh, a couple in the church, an older couple in the church. It's a Christmas card, and Cindy's uh, coat uh, uh, in the choir thing, and uh, we got home later and opened the card, and there was a check for $1,000 in it for, I uh, said, we just want to help you go to school on that. And, you know, we hadn't and said anything to anybody or anything else. And it just, and, and I'm, I don't know, you know, some people say, wow, what a coincidence. And, and I look at it and I just say, it was just God, just one, just again, just saying, I'm the covenant God. I, I keep my promises. And, and I'm always going to keep my promises to you. And, and, and so many times in my life, so many things. I'm not saying life is always easy or that God doesn't allow us to go through deep, deep, deep water. I'm just saying he's the covenant God who's always there. And it says, um, there's this rainbow and all this. And then, then verse 4, it says, and around the throne were 24 more thrones, encircling this, this throne. 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments, golden crowns on the head. Who are these guys? Who are these 24 elders? Because listen to me, this is the first time they've ever showed up in Scripture. None of the other Old Testament um, passages that, that deal with the throne of God in some sense, Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel's vision and uh, some of those, none of them mention these 24 elders. Suddenly these 24 elders show up. Who are these guys? Well, there's been some different positions put forward on them. Some people believe that they're angels. Um, in my opinion, there's just too much about their description and too much about what they do that don't lend themselves to the idea of being angels. My best understanding is that uh, these 24 uh, elders uh, represent the church. That's my, that's my belief, that the, the 24 elders represent the church. Now, I will say this, one, one other belief. And when I say the church, I'm talking about just the church age. They represent those who have come to a relationship with Jesus Christ during the church age. There are some people that believe that they represent all believers throughout all time. And, and they point to the fact that there were 12 uh, tribes in Israel, and there were 12 apostles in the New Testament, and those 12 and 12 make 24, and so it's, 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 it's picturing, it's typing, it's symbolizing all believers. I can live with that. That, that very well could be. But the reason I believe that it's probably in reference just to the church overall is, for one thing, what I just mentioned a moment ago, this is the first time these 24 elders are ever even mentioned in Scripture. And that makes sense. If they weren't there before, if if what has happened, what I think has happened, and I mentioned that we, we spent all last week talking about in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the church has been raptured or snatched out or taken out. The church is now in heaven. And so these 24 elders would represent the fact that the church now is in, is in heaven. In the Old Testament, as I understand it, uh, you know, there were thousands of, thousands of people who were part of the, the, the priesthood. There were thousands of priests who served in the temple. Well, obviously, they couldn't all serve at one time. And so according to uh, 1 Chronicles 24, I think it is, 1 Chronicles 24, David um, divides these 24, uh, these thousands of, of priests, he divides them into 24 L, uh, lines or groupings. And then you served according to your grouping when it, when it came around. But whenever those 
the heads of those 24 groupings met together, they represented the entire priesthood. Well, guess what? According to 1 Peter, according to what Peter says, 1 Peter, I think, chapter 3, chapter 2, he says, but you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You and I have come, become a priesthood of believers. Now, that has several implications for, for us. What it means is, number one, I don't have to go through anybody else. I have direct access to the Father. Number two, it also means that I have the opportunity to be used by God to intercede for others, to pray for them, to share with them the message of Christ. And so in that sense, to be sort of a priest to them, an intermediary to help bring them into a relationship with God so that then they themselves can have direct access to God just as I can. Your prayers carry just as much weight as my prayers if you're part of the body of Christ. So I think that these 24 elders represent the body, the priesthood of believers who are now gathered around the throne. This this is an awesome sight to me. Uh, They're wearing golden crowns. I thought that was kind of of interesting, especially given what they do with the crowns at the end. The the word, by the way, there's two Greek words in the New Testament that are used for crowns. The first word, the word used here is stephanos, and it means the victor's crown. Uh, in ancient times, in the Olympic Games, the winner of the race was given a, a, a leaf, a, a wreath garland placed upon their head. That was the Stephanos. That was the victor's crown. They had won the race. And that's the word that's used here. By the way, the other word uh, for crown in the New Testament is the word diadem, which you've probably heard before. It doesn't show up until Revelation chapter 19 and verse 12. And as you might guess, that crown is reserved for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus himself wears that crown in Revelation nineteen twelve. But they're wearing the victor's crown as they're gathered around the throne of God Almighty. And then in verse 5, it says, Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. Man, what an awesome sight. All this stuff is building up to being the, the lightning and the thunder. Quite frankly, most people are in agreement. Simply picture the fact that there's a storm brewing. There's a storm coming. And well, there was. The, the great tribulation period is getting ready to break out here in chapter 6. When, when we hit it, buddy, it is downhill from there as far as the world is concerned. Now, the lightning and thunder, you can say, well, it speaks of God's power. And certainly it does. But it also speaks of the fact that, that there's a storm brewing. There, there's, there's storm warning. Listen. Oh, I'm so glad God is patient. Oh, I'm so glad that he's been patient with me. He was patient with me before I had a relationship with Jesus. He's been patient with me when I've been a knucklehead, even in my life with Jesus. He is long-suffering, but there is a day coming when God's word says that his wrath will be poured out and that his judgment will begin to fall on, on on this world, on this world system. And it is a storm, the likes of which, I'm telling you, this world has never seen and that Hollywood can't even produce yet, even with computer animation. And I've seen 2012. It was over the top. (laughs) I still can't believe that dentist who'd had a few flying lessons could fly this thing between... Anyway, I digress. There's a storm coming, and the thunder and the lightning... You getting this in your mind? Remember, he's revealing something to us. Lightning sounds, peals of thunder. Uh, 
the seven lamps, I'm, I'm not going to, we, we, I mentioned that before, I've mentioned it weeks before, it's picturing, it's representing the Holy Spirit. That number seven means completeness, and it's a picture of the Holy Spirit and His presence being there in the midst of all this. And then verse six, and, and before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, that's all that John mentions about that. Um, he doesn't see, seems distracted with something else. I mean, not distracted, but he's got his mind on something else. But he does mention this, this crystal sea, which most people understand just represents uh, the, the holiness, the, 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 the separateness, the purity of God. This, this sea, this crystal sea that, that surrounds the throne, this, he's unlike any other. And he mentions it, but then he says, And in the center and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And then begins this in 6, 7, and 8, this description of these four living creatures. What's up with these guys? I mean, that, they're kind of freaky looking, right? They got eyes all around. They got six wings. One of them looks like a lion. One of them looks like a, 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 a calf. One of them looks like a man. One of them looks like an eagle. What's up with that? Well, again, remember, people have different positions, different ideas on what some of that can represent. But I remind you that Revelation is full of symbolism. That, that the events that, now, keep this in mind, the events that John is seeing in his vision as he's taken to heaven, they're, they're real. I mean, that's what he is seeing, but that, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything that he is seeing is is, is real. Some of it is symbolic. Some of it is, is symbolic of the message that God is trying to communicate to us. And in, in my opinion, that's what these four creatures are. I don't believe that these four creatures are actual four actual creatures that are in, in heaven. I believe that's symbolic. Now, in fairness, let me say this. Uh, Tim LaHaye, the writer of the Left Behind series, believes that these are actual creatures in heaven. He believes that they are what's referred to as seraphim part of the angelic host, and they are, they are actual creatures that are in heaven and um, that are there. I, I'm in the camp that sees these creatures as symbolic of God's creation, that they symbolize God's creation gathered there to worship him. Now, here's why I come to that conclusion. The, of the four creatures that are mentioned, all four of them represent some uh, some segment of God's created order. For instance, the lion. What, what do we say about the lion? He's the king of the beasts, right? He's the king of the wild. Everybody thinks of the lion as the king of the, the wild, the beastly kingdom, if you will. The calf, more than likely an ox, was the greatest of the domesticated animals. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation, the greatest of God's Creation created in His image, and the eagle. Most people automatically associate the eagle with the with the greatness, uh, the the greatest of all the 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 bird flock, if you will, of of God's creation. So I, I think what what John is seeing is is a is a picture of of the church gathered there and God's creation gathered there, and all these eyes that that the, that these creatures have. What what I believe those eyes are saying is that. That all of God's creation displays the glory of God. That you can see God in all of his creation if you'll simply look. 
See, that was the argument the other night with these, with these guys at the bar. I look at the creation, the order. I look at the, the functionality of, of my hand and the fact that I can use it in so many versatile ways. I look at the, the structure in, in the solar system, I, I, and, and all I see is God all over it. And they look at it and, and see, no, it's, it's random chance. It's random order. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that all of God's creation has made him, as I think as Paul puts it, plainly or clearly seen. I think that's what the eyes represent. That, that it's saying that if you just look in God's creation, you'll see God in his creation. And they are gathered there. Now watch this. They're gathered there and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, step back with me now, just a minute. Step back. Get this image in your mind. Let, let God reveal to you what I think he's trying to say here in this passage, in this interlude, before we get into the storm. Step back and see this throne in your mind, this, this throne surrounded by this crystal sea. With, with, with lightning and thunder and, and peals of, of thunder rolling from this, from this throne and this glorious and brilliant light emanating from, from this throne and this one who sits upon this throne. And these 24 thrones surrounding this throne and these, these 24 elders clothed in white gathered around this throne, all of them gathered around. And these four living creatures that are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And as they proclaim his glory and as, as the 24 elders bow down and as they cast their, their crowns, the victor's crowns before his throne because the, the victory was only secured because of him. That's the only reason they wear the victor's crown. And he casts them before their, their throne and they, and they join the, uh, the, the creatures in their, in their crying out to him. And they say, as they cry out, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. What an incredible scene it must have been. Come on, guys. Praise team. Come on up here. Why did you come here today? Did you come here today because that's what you're supposed to do? It's your duty. You're a Christian. You're supposed to go to church. Why did you come here today? Why did you come here today? Because, well, I might get to see some of my friends, and I'd like to see some of my friends. Why did I come here today? Was it just to maybe hear something that would somehow make me feel good or feel better or somehow... or? Is it possible that you and I could have or should have come here today because he who sits on that throne is worthy to be praised, worthy to be worshipped? You want to know what the big picture biblical principle is? It's this, worthy of worship, God the creator. That's what that's what the creature said. That's what the elders said as they gathered around all of them together. They say, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you have created all things. We have to start with the understanding that he is God. And he is on his throne. And that he is worthy of praise. I invite you. I encourage you. Worship 
Him. Forget about everything else. Worship Him today. Worthy of worship, God the Creator. Clearly, the focal point of this chapter is God is on His throne. His creation worships Him and declares His greatness along with the church gathered around the throne. He is the Creator and worthy to receive glory and honor and power. We don't have to, and we shouldn't wait until we get to heaven to praise Him. It's good for us to see God like this because it reminds us of how great our God is. And no matter what comes into our lives, He is a God who is on His throne and more than capable of handling anything that comes our way. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, joy, and hope. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Now this week's Cross Culture Q&A. Uh, let's talk about uh, Q&A for today. Interesting question, and it's a question in some sense that uh, I think we've touched in this area before. I can't remember exactly. I think kind of touched in this area, but it sort of has some relevance for where the message is going uh, today, uh, or at least some application for it, and so I, I wanted to deal with this again. The question, and this is how it was written on the card, uh, is this for Q&A. It says, what does the Bible say about God, Jesus, Holy Spirit? That's, that's the way the question is. What does the Bible say about God, Jesus, Holy Spirit? Now, what the person who wrote this, what they're referring to really, and you've heard me mention this several times, what's known as the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the, the, tr- the belief in, a tr- in the triune God. And then, and then the question expanded, uh, the person that wrote this, the question expanded, and it said it like this, and I wanted to go ahead and put that up there too. And the question said, um, can I have that next question, please? No? Not a next question? Okay, um, it says, I want to understand why they're spoken of as three different people. That was what the question was. Want to understand why spoken of as three different people, but we pray to one God. Are they separate or one? Yes, the short answer, yes. Yes. Um, now, if you've, if you've been here before, if you've heard me talk about the doctrine of Trinity before, you've heard me say this, nobody fully understands or comprehends the doctrine of the Trinity. There it is. There it is. 
I knew it was there somewhere. Want to understand why they're spoken of as three different people, but we pray to one God. Are they separate or one? Um, uh, the short answer is yes. They, they, they are one, uh, if, that can, if we can get our mind around that. Uh, let me give you a passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, uh, perhaps a familiar passage to, to most of you. Then God said, let us, I want you to notice the plural, let us make man in our image. Notice the plural. According to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image. So even from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, there was, there was already a foundation being laid for the idea that God was singular God and yet he was plural. If I... If I could have found an easel this morning, I was actually going to try to get an easel up here, but I couldn't find one. Um, I, I would kind of draw it out like this. So just kind of think of it like this uh, as best you can in your mind. If, if I was to write on an easel, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and I were to write them side by side, not in any type of up or down hierarchical structure, but to write them actually side by side. And I were to, to draw a circle around that, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and draw a circle around that. Those three persons, distinct persons, make up what is known as the Godhead. That they are three persons, and and of course we're not thinking in terms of like human persons, but they are distinct personalities, entities, persons. They make up one Godhead. They work in such complete unison and unity that they are, for all intents and purposes, they are one God, but they are three persons. 2,000 years ago, if we had that, the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 2,000 years ago, God the Father, or God the Son, excuse me, came to earth, if I were to draw a line and come down, came to earth and took on flesh and became a man that we know as Jesus. But God the Son had always existed, always co-eternal, co uh equal. But 2,000 years ago, he came to earth and took on flesh and became a man, lived a sinless life, went to the cross, died, rose again three days later, and rose again in, as as Scripture seems to to, uh, define, a glorified body. It was a body that you could touch. Jesus told uh, his disciples, you know, put put your hand in the nail prints or in the the scar on my side. I put it, and so there's this, there's this actual physical body, but it's somehow been transformed into an eternal body, which tells us something about what we will be like in eternity as well. And so God the Son took on flesh, uh, but he was always co-equal. So it's three who make up the Godhead. And then the last part of the question was uh, this. Which one will return in the clouds, God or Jesus? Now, let me just, first off, let me say, when, we, when, when, when the person writes a question like that, or when you ask like that, I, I know what you mean. Um, you, what you're probably meaning is God the Father or Jesus. But remember, when you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about who? That's right. You talk about the Father, you're talking about who? You talk about the Holy Spirit, you're talking about who? That's right. So, uh, which one will return, God or Jesus? 
uh, yes, <laughs> you know, kind of again. But um, no, actually, that one, that one is, is, uh, is pretty easy. Uh, after, and after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. His disciples watching. Here goes Jesus. He's going back to heaven. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing, two angels, stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This who? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So, there is a day coming when Jesus, who, who lived on this earth 2,000 years ago, crucified, rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, when he will physically, bodily return to this earth to establish his kingdom. First to take his bride and then to come and set up his kingdom on earth. So there's Q&A for today. 